Welcome to episode 16 of This Is You podcast. This is Carol Yu. And Scott Stewart. What were you doing from June through September 2012? Well, I was watching a Renaissance woman who beat out 45,000 applicants to get to the top three of season three of the TV show MasterChef. We are so excited to introduce Chef Becky Reams as our special guest today. Becky explains how she turned Gordon Ramsay from naysaying critic to wholehearted supporter. We explore her roots in gorgeous food photography for which she gives us tips. Then find out what top Hollywood TV shows for which she did the food styling. And finally, we get inspired by her philosophy on moving forward, knowing she has a new chance every day to show up. Listen up, listen up. After we talk to Becky, tune your ears in as we have a new segment on international food. We reach out to thank our listeners from around the globe by honoring their country's national dish. Then, drum roll please. Find out how you can win a $25 Amazon gift card. Welcome, Chef Becky, to the This Is You podcast. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so excited. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're super excited you're here. We have a question, strangely enough, for you. In doing research about you, we couldn't find much information about your life before MasterChef. What's the deal? Like, were you in jail or maybe a spy from a foreign country? Can you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Right, of course. Uh, yeah, I feel like the internet didn't exist very much before I was on MasterChef, at least not in the social ways that it does now. And I remember when I was on MasterChef, actually, they had just started integrating social platforms into the use on television. So on my apron, even, it had my Twitter handle. Because at that oh. time, Twitter was like the only major social platform that was being used. So right. that's kind of a funny side note. But um, let's see, pre-MasterChef. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Kansas City. Um, I moved out to California in 2006 to go to school. And I actually majored in commercial photography and I was a food photographer. So I was a food photographer for years before I started cooking professionally. And the catalyst for cooking professionally, of course, was MasterChef. So right. pre that, I was just shooting. And um, I worked for Guess, which is a clothing company, you know, and yeah. I was their lead retoucher in their photo studio. Oh, so wow. I was a big like techie person. Sorry, can I stop you one second there? Yeah. So they do retouching? This is the first <laughs> yeah. I've heard of this. This is outrageous. Oh, hilarious. Yeah, no, it's everyone doesn't naturally look that way. I know it's very shocking <laughs> for people to hear. Yeah, so I worked for them for, let's see, about four years up until 2012, which is when I went on MasterChef. And that was kind of, and then after that, I quit that job and pursued cooking full time. But um, I was a big photographer, retoucher, nerd. Right, right. That actually brings me up to... Another question I have here, what are a few of your favorite tips you can give regarding food photography? Just because we know you're so awesome. Your pictures online are amazing. Look delicious. Oh, thank you so much. And I, I love that. I get this pretty often. And I, I love this question because I, I spent a lot of money on a photography education. So it feels great that at least I can still use a little bit of that right. to some extent. <laughs> a few of the tips, you don't really need a lot to make a great food photograph. I would say one of the most important things you can get is a piece of whiteboard, like a piece of foam core or like a heavy, sturdy poster poster board. 
and you just want to shoot anything by the window. So you don't want to ever take food photographs at night. You always want to have big natural light and you just position your plate that you're going to photograph somewhere near a window and then you use your white poster board directly adjacent to the window to help reflect light back into the opposite side of the dish. And then just use a really shallow depth of field, which means that you're getting close to the food so the front part that's facing your lens is going to be a little bit sharper than what's at the back of the photograph and it's going to look really delicious. That's a great pro tip there. Can you tell us a little bit about your cameras? Did you have super high-end cameras? Did that make a difference with what you were shooting? Not really. I mean, yes and no. Yes, I do have a nicer camera. I have to shoot with a Canon and it's a 5D Mark III Mm -hmm. and I've had it for forever. Mm -hmm. So it's not even the latest model. I mean, I haven't really bought new camera gear in so long because it's not my primary career focus anymore. But I use that camera. It's great. It's really about having an awesome lens. So if you do shoot with Canon, you know, you want to get the L-series lenses. I love anything that's a 2.8 aperture or wider because Uh you have a little bit more opportunity to get, like I was talking about, that shallow depth of field and that beautiful bokeh in the background, which is where you know, subjects kind of fall off focus and create this beautiful organic pattern. But quite frankly, now, I mean, a lot of stuff on my Instagram, I shoot with my iPhone because the (laughs) iPhones are so excellent. And it's for that, it's really all just about positioning and composition and light. You can take a great photograph with almost any camera if you have great light. So it's really about trying to find a great environment to shoot versus trying to find the perfect piece of equipment to use. And just focus on getting the actual item to look beautiful in natural light. It makes your job so much easier. Exactly, exactly. And there also must be an element too, as you said, you were working with guests and you were doing retouching for them. So you must have some pretty pretty good skills in Photoshop or Lightroom. It's true. And I've used both those programs and I still use them. In that environment, it was such a specific kind of work. Um, you know, we were doing a lot of clothing manipulation and color correction, that kind of thing. So I will say that the big takeaway from working at guests for me is color correction. So I can look at almost any photo and tell if it has a color shade one way or the other if it's leaning a little bit too green or magenta and and that really affects food photographs too because if you take a photograph of say like pancakes with melted butter and syrup and it's this very like Yum. warm right so this is emoting like ideas of warmth and, and morning time and whatever but if you're shooting it in the evening or under fluorescent lights and it has a green cast or a blue cast it totally throws off kind of the idea of the image so you need to be able to correct that to make it more of a warmer yellow light to make it feel more natural. Mm, That's a really good tip. Things like that would make a difference. Yeah. So you're sort of visually manipulating people's emotions with color. Absolutely. That's what every artist does. (laughs) Music, (laughs) photography, food, we're all manipulating people's emotions. I know that you also do private catering and are a personal chef. So what's the most insane event that you've ever had to do for a high profile client? And basically, we're looking for gossip here. (laughs) Of course, of course. Um, Gosh, such a good question. Uh, Let's see. I will say at a certain level, when you get above, I think a certain financial level, and there's a certain amount of people that are controlling parts of your life in like this billionaire space, everything becomes a little bit crazy because people have to flex their power in really unusual ways because they've lost power in so many little insignificant parts of their life. Like if someone isn't, if they're not making their own bed or like making their own breakfast or dropping their own kids off at school. It's like you you lose control of so many things. So all that, which to say that a lot of my clients are crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think it's a sliding scale of what (laughs) I, my expectation now. So my expectation of crazy is 
kind of like a baseline. So it has yeah. to go pretty above and beyond that. Let's see if I can think of a specific. I can't really give you any names, unfortunately, because <laughs> NDAs are like a real big part of the business. But maybe just sort of on the broad scale of things, like this one time I did a party where there was a walrus and like that kind of a thing. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? I don't have any walrus stories, unfortunately. Uh, I have Nothing had at the cook- zoo, huh? I cook nothing at the zoo. It's not the most pleasant place to eat a meal. You know, yeah, there's a lot of true. aromatic elements that you don't want to be around. Everything sort of has a fish kind of a smell flavor to it. Yeah, yeah. very earthy. Very earthy. <laughs> uh, let's see. I had to cook Thanksgiving one year for a family of eight, which isn't crazy. Um, but they had so, they wanted every single thing. And they gave their kids free reign, which this is also another big thing with ultra rich families is that they don't really put any restrictions on their kids. And so the kids all got to choose every dish that they wanted. And then of course they wanted all the classics on top of that. So I ended up making over 25 different dishes for a family of eight, which of course is asinine because there's no (laughs) way they're gonna eat it all. And they also don't really wanna eat leftovers even though they think they do. So it's, it's this weird thing where you can like see the end result of what's happening but you can't really get them to sway off the path so it was just it was just insane it was just like the longest three days of my life of making all of these different dishes and and they were thrilled you know everyone was happy and pleased but it was just so over the top it was kind of like insane it sounds like one of those stress dreams that we all have where you see things unfold before you and you can't really do anything about it you're trying to talk and Uh your mouth's Uh working but nothing's coming out (laughs) <laughs> yep. No one can hear you. You're just like swinging your arms in the air yeah. and people are just going about their business. Yeah. I have a lot of those. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what the dreams? You have yeah. a lot of those dreams? <laughs> There's no control. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have this uh, recurring stress dream whenever I get stressed out that I used to work in restaurants and I work in the restaurant, but it's like, I'm serving the whole restaurant and there's like 300 people that just sat down and and the questions in my head are, hey, where's the rest of the wait staff? Shouldn't there be more people in here helping me out? So it gets kind of crazy. Yes. God, that's the worst. You know, I was a waiter too when I was younger for a while, actually, I think for like four years. And those, that was probably, not to say that my work now is not very stressful, but at that time in my life, it was the most stressful thing. And the feeling that someone asks you, oh, have you been to your table such and such yet? And then you're like, no, and you didn't know you were sat. Yeah, and then you find exactly. out three wow. minutes later that you were sat and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. And you run over there and they're like already mad. And yeah. oh, it's like your oh, heart man. sinks. I hate that feeling. And then you got to blame it on the waiter in the next section. Yeah, yeah that was, I'm right. just picking up a table for Phil here. Uh, well, what can <laughs> yeah, I get for you? Yeah, he dropped the ball. Yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. I'll buy you some free dessert. <laughs> <laughs> what class at Johnson County Community College in Kansas propelled you forward? <laughs> Um, not much. I went to, uh, it was a, yeah, it was a community college that I went to after high school because I was still trying to decide where I wanted to go to college. And I played softball competitively when I was younger. And so I kind of had the opportunity to either go to these schools on scholarship for softball that I had been offered or go a different direction. And I just wasn't, I didn't want to play softball for the rest of my life. So I had decided against that, but hadn't really decided much else beyond that. So I went to Johnson County Community College, which we call JUCO, if you're in the know. (laughs) JUCO. I went to JUCO. I went to JUCO for a year just to get undergraduate classes. I figured that way I could at least knock out some undergrad classes to transfer when I did choose. And so I just, you know, it was like basic stuff, English, science, math, psych, art history. And then I transferred those to Brooks when I went to photography school. So why did you, how did you decide that you wanted to come out to LA to go to Brooks? Brooks was actually in Santa Barbara. So I actually moved to Santa Barbara and I lived there for two years. And then I moved to LA just to start working um, because... Santa Barbara is a very small 
community and um, there isn't much of like many career opportunities there outside of just horseback riding and like working at a restaurant, which is wonderful. I love that city for that exact reason, actually. So if you opened up a drive-through horseback riding restaurant, you'd really (laughs) knock it out of the park. I'm writing this down right now, Scott. Uh, I moved out here for for school. Um, I mm-hmm. had decided on Brooks as a, a photography school. It was like one of the best schools in the nation for fine art photography. And it was something that I had also been doing a lot of in high school and had won some awards and stuff. And just really loved it. And I loved food and I loved photography. So I was like, well, I got to choose one of those things. And the photography one felt like a little bit more of a the good direction, which ultimately that did not end up being the case, but it's fine. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how certain types of photography just sort of resonates with who you are. Yeah, it's true. And who you are at a certain point in life, too, because that can always Mm -hmm. evolve and change, as it has with you. Absolutely. And I think that at my core, I do believe I'm an artist, and I'm a very hands-on person, and I I feel my most myself when I'm physically creating things. I absolutely love cooking. I love the aspect of getting to nurture someone in more than one way, Mm -hmm. while also, for me, cooking is really a moving meditation. And I think that similarly in photography, you're getting to create something that's capturing a moment in time for someone to really enjoy, which is very similar to cooking. I think about when I cook a meal for someone and serve it to them, it's a kind of an art piece in one moment in time that then disappears. So it's a very like temporary art installation in a way. And I think that's kind of a cool way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's like a, a pop-up art piece. <laughs> it is. It's very true. Only it tastes better. It tastes, hopefully it tastes better. Yeah, exactly. Unless it's a really cool art piece. So let me ask you, um, what type of cuisine have you never cooked? Why and will you change that? Oh, um, I have never cooked. Well, there's a lot really. Um, Traditional African or North African food. I just don't know enough about it. Um, I think it's an incredibly interesting cuisine, but I just don't know enough about it. And I don't want to butcher it. Traditional Chinese food like Mandarin. I haven't cooked that very much. I dabble a lot with Thai cuisine and Japanese food because I kind of understand those ingredients better and I understand the way that they work together. A lot of Chinese cooking is about technique and I don't necessarily have the capabilities of doing that because you need a huge walk. But funny enough, when I owned and opened Lately, which was my breakfast restaurant downtown, it was in Chinatown. It was in Chinatown, right. (laughs) It was in Chinatown, right. So I... I mean, I met so many lovely Chinese people and we bought a wok from a restaurant across the street and it was a traditional... Carbon steel. It was carbon steel. I'm trying to think of the name that they used for it because it was a it was a whole unit. I mean, it was massive. The BTUs on this thing, when you would turn the flame on, it, the wok would become 500 degrees in a matter of seven seconds. Oh, wow. I mean, it wow. was so powerful and it was incredible. Food would cook in two minutes. We would like, we would do a farro grain bowl. So it would be farro and then we would do egg, of course. So it was, for me, it was a play on like a fried rice, but it was incredible and you can just never make delicious fried rice in anything other than a 700 degree walk, in mm-hmm. my opinion, because it's just, that's literally where the flavor comes from. If you try to do it in your skillet at home, it, it will never be the same. So for that reason, I don't cook as much Chinese food as I would like, because I think it's a really fascinating cuisine. But I guess that's my long-winded answer. That's interesting because <laughs> I cook mostly Chinese food and I probably need to get that walk from you. Yeah. Oh, no, I feel like I just threw shade on you the entire time we were talking about <laughs> that. Oh, no, 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 that. no. No, totally. <laughs> no, because, you know, I'm a home cook, so I, uh-huh. I actually have never tried doing that, you know, using a 700-degree walk, and it would be really interesting to find out how that changes the flavor. You get so much caramelization so quickly, mm. you know? Right. I think we'd have to put some insulation in our kitchen, too, <laughs> to have that going. <laughs> And probably get a hood system too, right? because it creates a lot of smoke. On your website, you have videos of yourself. Have you ever thought about being the next Gordon Ramsay? (laughs) Definitely not Gordon Ramsay. Um, (laughs) I, I I love doing video work though. 
And um, gosh, Gordon Ramsay, he's, he's a pro. Like Gordon Ramsay is a master. I have so much respect for him. I mean, obviously I was on MasterChef, so that was my, my real interaction in meeting the guy. Mm-hmm. And people always joke now, Carol, I'm sure you can relate to this, where they're like, is Gordon really that mean? And like, mm-hmm. is he so intense, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's like, he is, but at the same time, it's fully warranted, right? Because this is someone who has spent his entire life building up a reputation for having to work really hard, work himself through the ranks. It's just... And he really does care. And mm-hmm. even when he's yelling at you, nine times out of 10, it's true. He just mm-hmm. might be a little bit more intense about it than, right. than what you would like to hear. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, your, your experience with Gordon Ramsay was a little different than mine because I think on MasterChef Junior, he was actually way pulled back and he didn't want to yeah. really make children cry pee their pants and cry (laughs) because he has a big heart like he genuinely has a really big heart he doesn't hate people he's actually like a very loving and endearing person he's He's got six kids exactly the guy can't quit having kids but it's it's a (laughs) funny um yeah he's he's amazing he's great on camera he's funny anyway so i i admire that guy a lot for me I would not be Gordon. I don't have, I have not spent my life honing my craft in France and whatnot to do that. However, I do love doing video work and I love teaching people. I love sharing knowledge. I think that sometimes in this industry, there's a stigma around wanting to be better than someone else or not wanting to share your recipes, looking inferior. You know, there's a, it's a, you know, the whole system is based on the Brigade. I mean, for goodness sake. So it's like to work in restaurants, they, you're, highlighted at a certain level for your skills or your Mm -hmm. leadership abilities and so to take that and sort of dismantle that it's a challenging thing to do but i'm i'm hoping that now that has kind of started to dissipate a little bit and we can all understand that cooking should be something that is really fun and we can share our knowledge and i i would love to be able to share any kind of knowledge i have about cooking and doing little cooking videos is is a fun way to do that right well definitely during this time of coronavirus so many people are getting into breads and cooking at home and people are doing a lot of content of you know just taken with their shaky iphone and people i think like you said they're they're starting to realize it doesn't have to be a perfect you know um shot on a red camera kind of uh, video. Yeah. So let me ask you, so during your initial interview cook on MasterChef, you were really determined, but Gordon Ramsay gave you a no. Yeah. So what did you feel during that moment? Of course, I felt massive rejection, but I also felt weirdly at home with having to prove myself. I think my entire life I've had to prove myself and there's always like a little bit of pushback. And I've always been someone that I'm extremely determined. I'm very hardworking and I will I will get the two out of three if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like the analogy there of like, I, I might not be able to convince everyone all at once, but if you give me an opportunity, I'm going to fight and work my way to the top and I'll, I'll show you kind of thing. You know, I'll, I'll prove myself to you. So in an interesting way, I kind of, I've thought about this before and I wonder if I did better on the show because mm-hmm. I felt like I had something to prove versus if I had gotten all threes if that would have changed my mentality, or if I had gotten all yeses, excuse me, if that would have changed my mentality going into it. I don't really think it would have, but it certainly, I certainly like had to work harder because of it. At what point during your MasterChef journey did you feel that you'd turn Gordon into being supportive of you? Ooh, um, I, it's, I'm not sure. Here's why I'm not sure. It's been so long that I don't remember the order of the challenges. So I can't remember if like one challenge was maybe before another one. I will say I think it was from mystery box challenges 
because I tended to do pretty good at mystery box challenges, mm -hmm. which was specifically where we had to work under pressure in a short amount of time to create something out of nothing, kind of think on our feet. Right. And I am pretty good about working on my feet and making something out of nothing. So I think that during that time, I think I I was in the top three, five times in a row. And I think at that point, that's where Gordon kind of maybe shifted his thinking right. that maybe I did have something to offer. Right. So I would say that was the first time I changed his mind. And he did offer you a job at any restaurant when you left the show. Did you take him up on that offer? I did. It's kind of a, it's kind of a weird story. Ooh, that sounds good. Weird is good. <laughs> it's a little juicy. It's a little juicy. He, I did. So we, we talked after the show, which was cool. And he was like, yeah, there's a, let me connect you with my executive corporate chef, which is her name was Andy Van Willigan at the time, which I think she still works with him, but I'm not sure. So she, there was a new restaurant that they had kind of just opened in LA. And if you recall, or you probably already know this, there isn't really a high end Gordon Ramsay concept in LA. The kind of the closest one would be Vegas. Right. There isn't really a high end concept here. And I wasn't, I didn't really want to move or I wasn't really in a position to move yet. And there wasn't really a great opportunity for me elsewhere. Like he didn't say, hey, there's a great opening at my New York restaurant. Would you want to go? And I wasn't really prepared to move anyway. So mm -hmm. I went to the new restaurant here in LA, which was at the Grove. And I think it was called Blue Cow yeah. or something like that. Sort of fast casual. Yeah, we had gone to that restaurant before. Okay. We actually went with the Master Chef, some of the Master Chef Junior kids. Oh, cool. You know, we went for Dara's birthday and actually Luca, oh, nice. Luca even came and showed up. Oh, that's mm -hmm. cute. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That was before he moved to Texas. Yeah. Right. So I went and staged there and I just did not love the environment. It was not what I was looking for at the time. I was looking for more of a fine dining environment where we were creating like really cool things and really doing beautiful dishes. And the food was very fast casual, which is there's literally nothing wrong with that at all. But at that point in my life, I didn't want to be like making French fries and like, I don't know, pan fried sea bass or whatever. It didn't really lend itself because um, we ate there all so, but it didn't, it sounds mm -hmm. like it didn't really lend itself to the real strong creative side that is uh, inside you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So I kind of came in, you know, and I staged, they were going to offer me a sous chef position, which looking back now is kind of insane because I didn't have any real time cooking experience in a restaurant. So that wouldn't have really worked out anyway. I think they had five sous chefs, which is an enormous amount, which already tells me that they're not taking their regard system very seriously, because that means that everyone's kind of just has like labels like this person just does inventory and this person just yeah. does lunch shifts and whatever so i didn't know if it really was the right environment for me to learn what i wanted to learn and when i was staging a lot of the line cooks were just did not seem happy they did not seem driven they were just like going through the motions and so i ended up passing on that job and i went and worked at providence for about eight months and then from wow. there i transitioned to raiden stark bar which is at LACMA. Mm -hmm. And that was at the time under chef Chris Morningstar, who was so intense, still is, but not to the degree he was. At this time, he was just a lunatic, but extreme, like a mad scientist, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the good side of the lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> on the good side of like throwing shit at you in the kitchen, yeah. exactly. And that was a really great experience for me. I was there for two years. It was like insanely difficult. I can't even stress that enough. I would cry when I got home a lot at night wow. and stuff. It was just really intense. But also it's because I was just learning so much so quickly that you almost don't even have time to catch up with like what's happening. You're just learning so much information and trying to hang in there. And so that was a really great experience for me to kind of get the worst case scenario of, of what real difficult fine dining kitchens can be like. And then I worked at the Church Key after that because I had a friend who was a sous chef there and they needed extra help. And then kind of launched my business after that, mm -hmm. my life through the restaurant industry in LA. 
Right. I think we also ran into you afterwards. I think you were doing all of the food prep at a Kiss FM event for That's all of right. the MasterChef kids. Yes. Yeah, I think you were there. I think I remember running into you there. Totally. And you know what that's from? So that's interesting. So this was still kind of, I should back up. So this is a little bit of how I still was kind of working with Gordon Ramsay because I was working as a food stylist. So I would do a, occasional food styling work. And that came because, did you, do you know Sandy Birdsong? Did oh, she of course. Do? Yeah, she was yeah, the okay, main great. chef that trained the kids. Exactly. Okay, so she's amazing. So she was the food producer. And uh, so Sandy connected with me and she would uh, send me like food styling work if I wanted it, which of course I was like, sure. And food styling was something that came super naturally to me because I was cooking and then also my background in photography. So I had a very good idea of like how things look on camera and how food can be photographed. And so I would do a lot of this stuff for uh, TV, a lot of like um, the Conan O'Brien show or Access Hollywood, Queen Latifah show, The View, all these kinds of things. Then occasionally whenever Gordon would have like say he would be doing a cooking segment for like Conan, for example, right. they would call me to come and style his segment. So then I would put together the whole segment to kind of prep ahead of time for him to come out. And then that I would work with Andy and her team because he has like a whole corporate executive catering kitchen just to prep random things for him. So it was like I would work with their team to style it up on set and stuff. So I would kind of work with them on some of those projects. And the Kiss FM project came from that because they were like, hey, we're doing this thing with MasterChef Junior. Um, could you go and help? just sort of like be the culinary consultant on site to help make sure everything goes well. I was like, yeah, of course, which was basically just food styling. So that sounds like it was really quite fun doing a lot of the different work for the shows. Totally. I loved it. I always thought culinary production was super fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also just the amount of information that you learned in such a short period of time probably helped immensely. Absolutely. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just, I, I love that stuff. You know, I mean, I love learning. I love getting to be around lots of people. Um, I love production in general. I think that's I really loved being on MasterChef, not only because I was a contestant, but I just really loved the aspect of production. I love seeing like how the cameramen work and like the art director and how Brian would be directing. It's just, it's all really fascinating to me. And so I could always see myself in any element of production, either in front or behind the camera, really. Right. Well, so you just talked about production. So when you were on MasterChef, was the production portrayal of you truthful? And did it really reflect who you were? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. <laughs> Has anyone ever said, yes, exactly. I'm like that person. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. I would hope. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, it is a slippery slope, though, I'll say, because yes, of course, I did say those things. Was I persuaded? Was I in the interview room for three hours? Yes. Also, yes. So there's certain things that, you know, story producers are there specifically to try to create a storyline that viewers right. are going to be interested to watch. Right. So I was villainized on my season mm -hmm. because... I was, you know, very competitive. And at several points during the show, I said I was competitive, mm -hmm. which I'm not ashamed of. I think life is a competition, yeah. if I'm being really honest. So, you know, you always have to want to fight for yourself. And I always want to be the best version of myself and, and produce my best work. So it would have been a lie if I sat in an interview and said, oh, you know, I did my best, but I hope, you know, we'll just see what happens. Mm -hmm. uh, if I didn't win, that's okay. Like, no, if I didn't win, I'm going to be very disappointed in myself right. because I want to win. So it's very easy to take sound bites and put them into situations side by side with a soundbite of someone else saying, you know, Becky's really intense or something, and then making it kind of look like I'm this malicious person. Right. The reality of the situation was, is we were all very close. And we had 
I mean, we all had a really strong connection. There was a couple people on the show that maybe I wasn't best friends with. That doesn't mean I didn't respect them and have fun with them, you know, post shooting. Like we would get drinks and have dinner together and laugh and et cetera, et cetera. So you're just in a really high stress situation where you're shooting every day and you're not getting to see your family or wear on you a little bit. It's almost a little bit like now. Yes, it's very much like now. You're very isolated. The only difference is, is, you know, I'm spending so much time on my phone right now. And, you know, we didn't get to have our phones when we were on the show. So which judge on the show did you feel connected with your food the most? Or did it, it could have varied, I mean, from each time, but was there one judge that you sort of felt like they got what you were doing? I think I'll say yes. I'm going to say, I guess Gordon. I mean, he was, I'm like drawing such a blank. Oh my God. What was my other judge? It was Joe Gordon, Graham, Graham Elliott. Um, Actually, I think that I connected. I feel like I connected the most with Graham. And I think that maybe that might be the case for a lot of contestants because Graham was kind of like the nice one, right? Because he was funny and he was a little bit more charismatic, I guess. Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say with the kids on MasterChef Junior when we were there, they called him the teddy bear. Teddy bear. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? <laughs> That's so sweet. I love that. That's so cute. Um, yeah, he, I guess he could be a big teddy bear. I felt like he was the most willing to give me critical feedback aside when I would like talk to him and be like, hey, like what? Or he would pull me aside really and be like, hey, listen, here's here's what was really good. Here's what you need to focus on. Or he would like give me little tips where he'd be like, hey, just watch your knife work. Or like, hey, he would kind of say like, oh, what if you use, you know, such and such? What if you use tapioca maltodextrin? You can make it a lot lighter. Or he'd be like, hey, next time try using green onions instead of chives and like mince them finely and like throw it into the braids. Or he would like say little things to sort of give me ideas that the other judges didn't do. Wow, that's really interesting to hear that he would yeah. have done that. Yeah, oh, because cool. I think we would we would be do you know we, how do I explain it? So like we would have our our cooking challenge right, and they would tell us on camera and like da da da, and then there would be maybe like a five minute break where they had to reset, and so sometimes the judges would come and like walk around and just sort of talk to us, just like goofing off like they would just be funny and it was you know it was cool but sometimes they would talk to us about food stuff because like I said earlier they really did want us to succeed and they recognized that even though yes we're adults we also had not had previous culinary professional experience so they knew that there was a growing curve that we had to reach by the end of the show and they wanted to help us create better product so I always really valued those little tips from Graham and I would think about that whenever I would go into other challenges and it would really help me to expand my thinking Mm -hmm. it sounds awesome and his food is so his food is like so modern and gorgeous and just like crazy he's so creative Mm -hmm. so I always really appreciated that great so let me let me change gears here you've participated in panel discussions with other dynamic women what does it mean for you for a woman to be dynamic oh I think being dynamic is being flexible I think it's being really open to learning I think it's being um encouraging for other women to be successful in this business I think that I get this funny nickname from some of my friends that I'm a renaissance woman because I have lots of different things that I'm into. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just love being able to know lots of things. I love being able to, I guess you could just say I'm I'm not a one trick pony. I want to be able to shoot my cooking video and edit it and, you know, manage it on a social profile and all those kinds of things, just because I I enjoy that aspect of business. Mm -hmm. I like being able to do lots of things. And of course that can be, you know, it's a double-edged sword sometimes too. I would love to have a team of people, of course, that are doing Mm -hmm. things like that for me, but But there's a certain element, I think, of being a professional and trying to be at the top of your game that means you need to be able to work under lots of different circumstances and and really be flexible, I guess, just to come back to my original statement. What traits do you have to have to be a successful restaurant chef versus a successful personal chef versus a successful master chef? 
<laughs> well, successful Master Chef. I think that's. I, I don't know that one because I did not win Master Chef. But. but you did exceptionally well on the show. So thank you. You you went from Gordon Ramsay telling you no to winning him over. I mean, that's a huge success as far as I can see. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I will say my husband always tells me that I'm quick to recover. And I think that that's probably the best trait that I can share with you and that you have to kind of have a short memory. You have to have a thick skin and you have to be willing to work really hard and also working really well under pressure without doubting yourself. I doubt myself just like everyone else does. But I think at some point you have to just choose to be confident versus choosing to continue to doubt yourself. And if you're able to recover quickly from criticism or recover quickly from tough service or a tough event, and then just kind of push forward and just knowing that you have a new chance every single day, every single event to kind of show up differently and better. That's your best. Um, that's my best advice. Right. And it, it sort of lends itself back to what you were saying about a dynamic woman being flexible. I agree. Yep, exactly. How has COVID-19 affected your business and the restaurant industry? And do you have any tips about how the public can help restaurateurs and their employees? Yeah, it's been devastating, right? Um, I I left, so I opened lately in 2018 and I left last year. I I left the partnership. So I am not currently a restaurant owner anymore, but I fe- I have so many friends in the industry that do own restaurants and it's just been very very difficult. And I'll tell you as someone who previously did own a restaurant and manages a staff is that that is the absolute hardest part about kind of what this pandemic has done to us is it's not necessarily about I'm not making any money anymore. It's that you're letting down all of your staff because you can't employ them. So it's trying to figure out how do I take care of these people? The single biggest thing that weighs on restaurant operators shoulders other than rent, like not getting evicted is really just their people, their staff. Like Mm -hmm. you can't, you feel a very deep sense of responsibility for the people that you employ because you know, they come to work for you every day. They looked at you to pay their own bills. And if you can't help them do that, that's really an emotionally devastating thing to do. So having to furlough people and temporarily close has been really heartbreaking to watch. I do think that this is going to shed interesting light on the restaurant industry because it is a very unsustainable business in Los Angeles, the way that it's kind of set up now. Mm -hmm. There are a ton of new restaurants that open all the time, but there are even more restaurants that are constantly closing because the overhead is so high. It's so challenging to get quality work because, you know, you can't afford to pay them as much because your margins are so slim because rent is so high. And I think that that's going to become a more evolved conversation after this because I think we're going to see a lot of restaurants close and there's going to be a big shift in thinking. Mm -hmm. It's not really answering your question, but it's just something that's insightful. No, it is. No, absolutely. The way that it's affected me personally as a caterer and a private chef is just, you know, all my work stopped. And it's an interesting thing about my work is that it's all generated from just my clients and my clients who tell their friends that they need a chef. And uh, I don't have obviously like a salary. I don't go into an office or anything like that. But I have tons of clients that just if they're having a party, great, they call me. But then of course, whenever this happens, oh, they can't have a party anymore because they can't have more than 10 people. So they just have to put it on hold. All of my events that I had booked out, which we'll say was probably eight. I think I had eight events booked out for March and April. Wow. Um, all those got canceled. Oh, gosh. Uh, and then of course, I'm just not getting any new inquiries. So I would say typically on any given day, I'll get at least one inquiry, maybe two. Over the course of a week, I'll probably get around five to eight. Uh, And so that's, you know, that's a lot. And I've had zero. I had one, actually. I had one inquiry, but that's for a future date, which is great. I mean, it's for something this fall, but yeah, it's just no one's planning anything. I mean, nobody's trying to have dinner parties. Everyone's sort of in that holding pattern, waiting to see what happens. 
Totally. So in a weird way, it's scary. But in, on, on the other hand, I'm, I've very much accepted it. I'm not going through each day like terrified what's mm-hmm. going to happen. Right. You know, I do believe that once this gets lifted, that a lot of my work is going to start to come back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do, you know, it's just a, just a waiting game. That's all I can really do right now. Exactly. I mean, everything's just up in the air right now. Speaking of up in the air, I was really into drones for a long time. And I had uh, three drones over time. And I had a YouTube channel where I went out and flew my drone. And I just loved flying it up in the air. What? Now, apparently you have a drone story of sorts to tell. That's so funny. Um, yes, my husband proposed to me with a drone. How did that happen? Did he hang off of the drone? <laughs> oh my God, you guys. Yes, this is such a silly story. Um, I should preface this with saying that I am a very um, suspicious person naturally, not in a negative way, but I'm like a very, I'm very pragmatic. It's kind of hard to like pull one over on me to surprise me. Right. I think my husband knew this. So he went to extreme lengths to hire people to pretend as actors to pretend to be working for Amazon. So there's a trail that we go hike a lot. It's kind of near our house. Um, And it's really beautiful. And it's way up above the city. And so when we went to the trail to go hike one day, there was this guy at the head of the trail with an Amazon hat and like a lanyard greeted us. And uh, it's like, hey, hey, we're doing this. Um this test program with Amazon for drone delivery. And I had kind of briefly heard about (laughs) this drone delivery thing already. So it already was hitting on like my little, ooh, like this is so exciting. Like I get to be a test subject in this program. They're like, basically we use geolocation, GPS location from your phone to figure out where you're at. And then a drone will drop your package directly to you. So we can do it on this hike. We're doing it for free. We're sending water. We're sending like bottles and cans of water to drop to you guys during your hike. Would you want to do it? And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so weird. But like, yes, of course. (laughs) Greg was so smart because he had all of these planned questions of trying to like poke holes in the story. So he was like, yeah, but why are you doing it here? Like, this is kind of a private trail. Wouldn't you be in Santa Monica? Oh, smart. (laughs) And the guy's like, we were, but it was so busy that we were getting too much of a crowd and we couldn't operate our our tests properly. And so, of course, I was like so excited. So I ran back to the car to get my phone because I was like, oh, I'm going to Instagram this. This is going to be so cool. (laughs) So we go on about our hike and we're just running and we run up to the top of this hill and Greg's like, oh, hey, I ordered our water. I actually kind of got mad at him because we had only been running for like a mile. And I was like, why did you already order the water? Like, I'm not even thirsty yet. (laughs) But it was just a funny thing. And he was like, oh, no, it's fine. So we see the drone coming over over the hill and it has this long lanyard attached to it with a box at the bottom and it's like coming towards us and I'm videotaping it because I think it's so funny I'm like oh my god this is so cool we're getting water from Amazon right now and our dog's with us and she's going crazy because she hates the drone so it gets really close and it comes and it drops this box down like it's literally right over our head Greg disconnects it and I remember at the time thinking it was weird that the box was not an Amazon box it was like just a white box Hmm. But I thought, oh, they're just doing a test. They're, you know, it's just beta. I'm sure they're going to work all the kinks out later or something. It's just so silly, you know? And he opens it up and it's a can of LaCroix. And I was like, oh, that's, that's like so funny. I love LaCroix. Like, again, I'm not thinking logically. I'm just thinking. All this stuff I love. Exactly, right? It's so dumb. But it was a trick can. So he opens the can and inside is the engagement ring. Wow. And he proposes. And I was just, I like lost it. It was so crazy. That's so romantic. It's really good. I know. It's so silly. It was so grandiose, but it was very him. He's very like, he's very creative. You've said that your husband, Greg, calls you a Mustang because you're wild and stubborn. <laughs> Did I tell you that? It's on your Instagram. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Okay. Right, right, right. You've said that your husband, Greg, calls you a Mustang because you're wild and stubborn and nearly impossible to break and that you're <laughs> that he's kind of right. But the thing is, like any great horse trainer knows, you can't break the horse with force, only with patience and understanding. So how has Greg been scoring so far? 
<laughs> uh, really good. He's very patient. He's very understanding and he's very supportive, which is cool. I'm much more intense than he is. And I'm like very high energy all the time. And he is much more calculated and controlled, which is great for us because I can, we need that balance. So you catered your own wedding. How many arms do you have? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I did cater my own wedding. I just couldn't imagine not doing it. I, I think it's such an opportunity for me to cook for all the people that are most important to me. And I will say our wedding wasn't massive. We had about 50 people. It was manageable. It was also a way for us to help mitigate costs a little bit too, because if I'm being honest, I just don't have $50,000 to spend on a wedding. And Mm -hmm. I, I just couldn't rationalize that personally. So I just wanted to be able to, I knew that I would enjoy the food more if I made it. Mm -hmm. I knew that my guests would, I knew that it was, um, a cost viable option for us. And I just cater so much other stuff. It seems silly not to. And I will say, I personally was not cooking mm-hmm. in my wedding gown on the day of. <laughs> I was looking for the pictures. <laughs> Trust me, I, I went into the kitchen a few times to try to help plate up and all of my staff were just like, get out of here. <laughs> they were like literally shoving me out of the kitchen. It was really hard. It was really right. hard for me not to be there. I, I, won't, I won't lie, but um, I have, yeah, I have some people that I work with a lot who are wonderful and, and they did. They did all of it on the day of, which was cool. So as I alluded to a little bit earlier, my mouth always waters when I see your food. How would you describe your style of cooking? Oh, thank you. I guess I would just say super fresh, really bright, very Mediterranean. I think living in California, it's just, it it almost goes without saying we have so much awesome produce and so many incredible food vendors to work with that it's just really fun for me to cook with bright, colorful, beautiful produce because it's, every time I go to the farmer's market, it's like an adventure what I'm going to find, you know, I'll find a purple ninja radish or I'll find flowering purple bok choy. You just find all these crazy things. And so I kind of use that as my inspiration and then I'll create a dish around that. So if I find a, a really interesting ingredient, then I'll think about you know, what a traditional preparation might look like, and then how I can do a riff on that and then integrate a starch or a protein, you know, saucing all that kind of stuff. But yeah, really light. Using all your creativity. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end, but we have a lightning round of quick fire questions with eight questions that we have. Don't think about it too much, just one or two word answer. So number one, something people misunderstand about you. I have a huge heart. And just because I'm very direct does not mean that I'm mean. Favorite first band you were really into? Spice Girls. Oh, wow. Listen, it was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Best book you ever read? Um, I'll say East of Eden by John Steinbeck. What's something you are deeply grateful for now? My family. Favorite meal? Mm, Come on. Um, (laughs) I know hard for a chef. Ramen. Mm. What time will you wake up next Sunday morning? Probably 10. (laughs) (laughs) Who was your favorite Friends character? Ooh, um, Phoebe. Phoebe, Phoebe. Your favorite place on earth? Oh, my favorite place on earth. I'm going to say Maui. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Becky. We really enjoyed speaking with you. Oh my gosh. This is my pleasure. It was so much fun. Thanks for having me. That was wonderful for all your insight and your knowledge on everything. Thank you so much. Of course. I come back anytime. And where can our listeners check you out and find you on the internet? Your best chance is going to be on Instagram or my website, which is beckyreams.com. And that links out to everything else. Chef Becky Reams is my handle on Instagram. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. It was my pleasure. I'll talk to you guys soon. Okay. Bye. 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 Thank you so much to Becky for joining us for this podcast. Check out this dynamic Renaissance woman on the This Is You podcast page, along with mouthwatering photos of her awesome food photography and creative dishes. Now, our new segment merging our listeners from all around the world with their local national dish. 
We have listeners from the continents of North and South America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and Oceania. There are 20 countries from around the world which we have listeners. We absolutely love all you guys and are super grateful that you listen in. So, Scott, we're going to have a guessing game. I'm going to name each of the top 10 countries that has listeners to our podcast, and you are going to guess what that country's national dish is. Oh, boy, I'm excited, Carol, and hungry. (laughs) Okay, good. So the country that has the most listeners to our podcast is the U.S. What is the national dish? For the U.S. I'm going to say bacon and eggs. No. Try again. You want to try again? Sometimes you ask for this actually multiple times a week. Spinach, fudge, (laughs) bananas, waffles. Savory. Savory. Think of savory. No, savory. Savory. More waffles. Okay. Burgers. Yay. All right. That's it. Okay. Now this one you should know because you are from that country. Canada. What is the national dish for Canada? Beer, eh? (laughs) How about something with something that goes with French fries? Poutine. Oh, yes. Now what is poutine? It's a magical fairy concoction that makes you smile deep down inside. And it goes well with beer. That's true. But I don't know that most of our listeners know what poutine is. Poutine is a French-Canadian meal. It features three ingredients. What's the first one? Beer. (laughs) Okay, fries, cheese curds, and gravy. Now, I have no idea. What are cheese curds? They're made out of beer. Okay. All right. So we've got poutine is made out of beer, fries, cheese curds, and gravy. The next country that has the most listeners is Germany. Oh, I know this one. Alligator. Oh, gosh. This is something that in, it has the word in German. It's sauerbraten. I'm going to say sauerkraut, Alex. It's a German pot roast dish, which can be prepared using a variety of meats. So sauerbraten, they usually use beef, but sometimes they use venison, lamb, mutton, pork. And in some cases, they actually use horse meat. Okay, the next one. I think you should get this. This is from Oceana. It is Australia. Kangaroo, cane toad, shark. Roast lamb was declared Australia's national dish in a major poll of 24,000 Aussies. Okay, next one is a tricky one. UK. That would be the United Kingdom, Alex. And what do you think is the most popular national dish there? Fish, porridge, porridge and fish. Oh, that's a good idea. Actually, Chinese have something called juk, which is porridge and fish together. Oh, yummy. But this is the UK. And what kind of immigrants live in the UK? A lot of immigrants that live in UK. Curry. Close. Very good. It's chicken tikka masala is the most popular national dish. Do you know what it is? What's in it? Beer. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think they do drink a lot of beer in the UK, don't they? Uh, Yeah, they do. So beer with aromatic chicken, golden pieces of chicken swimming in an incredible curry sauce. So it really shows how Britain absorbs and adapts outside influences. Now, this one you should know because this is where my family comes from. Mince meat pies. Meat pies. Yay, meat pies. So our family comes from New Zealand. So every Christmas Eve, my mother goes up to a New Zealand bakery and buys three kinds of meat pies. What's your favorite that she usually has? Chicken. Chicken curry to mince pies with cheese. Mince pies with cheese are hamburger meat and it has a piece of cheese laying on the top um, to lamb pie. So it comes piping hot with crispy pastry and chock full of a glorious savory filling. 
This is the seventh most popular country that listens to our podcast, Sweden. Ah, meatballs from Ikea. Love those guys. <laughs> they have something called herring and potatoes. Oh, that's got to be so good. Now, the next one is Ireland. Ah, that would be lucky charms there. They're magically delicious. I'll make a bridge and run away. Irish stew. It's a thick, hearty dish of mutton, potatoes, and onions. Undisputably the national dish of Ireland. The next one we have comes from Asia. It's the Philippines. What is their national dish? Oh, this is easy. Plantain. Adobo. That's what I meant to say. They sound so much the same. <laughs> Adobo consists of pork or chicken, sometimes both. It's stewed or braised in a sauce, usually made from vinegar, cooking oil, garlic, bay leaf, peppercorns, and soy sauce. So really, it's kind of a stew, almost so like Ireland. The ninth one that we have is Mexico. Uh, frijoles. What is a frijoles? Beans. Queso. Enchilada. Burrito. <laughs> Those are good, but this is a sauce. Salsa. Uh, try again. Salsa verde. <laughs> How about something that has chocolate in it? Mole sauce. Mole sauce. Have you ever had mole sauce? I have. I've had very good mole what sauce. What does it taste like? You know what, Carol? I'm going to say it tastes a lot like chocolate. It says it's a tantalizing sauce made from sautéed onions and garlic combined with exotic spices and herbs. Ground nuts such as almonds, pumpkin seeds, or sesame seeds, and chilies simmered with dark, bittersweet chocolate. Last one, France. This would be the, uh, the French fry there. They like a the French fry. Is that Italian or French accent? It's right on the border. <laughs> It's potofer, potofo, potofo. I don't know. You speak French. How do you pronounce that? Beer. <laughs> potofo is pot of fire. Basically, it's the same as what we had in Philippines and Ireland. It's a stew. But this time they always have a marrow bone, oxtail, beef, and then they put it with vegetables like carrots, turnips, leeks, celery, and onions. We also want to give a shout out to the next 10 countries, Kenya, Belgium, Italy, Ecuador, Jamaica, Brazil, Spain, Romania, and South Africa. If you are from one of those countries, let us know what you love eating. Now, our first podcast giveaway. Woohoo! Between April 22nd through May 19th, 2020, enter our giveaway for a $25 Amazon gift card. It's simple. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to, and leave a review of our podcast, This Is You Podcast. We will choose our favorite review and announce the winner on May 19th on the podcast. Give us your feedback on our podcast. Leave a message for us on the This Is You hotline at 562-291-6037. It's anonymous. Just leave us a message with your thoughts. You can also direct message us on Facebook or Instagram or email us at carol at thisisyou.com. Carol is spelled C-A-R-O-L-E at thisisyou, spelled Y-U.com or scott at thisisyou.com. We are always trying to improve and would love any constructive criticism, and of course, all the constructive compliments, specifically to me, let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about or any suggestions of guests 
also. We all want to belong to a community and connect, and we want to offer up our ears and our hearts to you. Our home base is www.thisisyou.com. Instagram is at thisisyouofficial. And last but not least, our Facebook is thisisyouvip community. Catch you later. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye-bye. 